1: You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Then Lieutenant Wood's voice rang out clear and strong Limber to the rear, get your guns out of this. Then there was a scramble. Numbers one, three, four, and six guns fell back at once. Not so with two and five. Squad five had but three cannoneers and gunner Sherrill left, Dolan and Steiger and Crocker having gone with Flanagan to an ambulance. Four of their horses, including Bailey's Grey Eagle, were badly wounded. The three cannoneers were unable to run up the gun and hook it on. A.C. Hall jumped off his horse and putting his shoulder to the wheel, helped to run it up, and the others holding up and pulling on the trail. Just at this time, Charlie Kimball from Number 2 Gun came hopping up on one leg, having been badly wounded in the other, and he was caught and tossed on the footboard of the limber. Hall remounted his horse, and just as the gun was started, he was hit in the head by a shot and knocked off. I jumped and grabbed the near-lead horse by the bit, Foster the near-swing horse, and Colby the near-wheeler, and away we started at a run, the rebels less than a hundred yards from us, making a desperate effort to capture at least the two guns that were delayed in getting away. Poor Hall and Bailey were left behind to the tender mercies of the rebels, as we supposed, but Hall recovered his senses just as they were about to gather him in, and picking himself up, skipped away and escaped to the landing. At the same time, Steiger and Dolan came through the woods hunting for the battery, and found Bailey sitting against a tree, and each catching him by the arm, escaped safely with him to the landing, thus saving all our wounded from being captured. At the time the order was given, get your guns out of this, squad two was in worse shape than squad five. The off-wheel horse was the only one remaining. The squad, having disengaged all but him, attempted to haul off the gun, which they could have easily done with his help, but he obstinately refused to move. Matters were growing desperate. The rebels were so close their brass buttons could plainly be seen. Many balls were rattling like hail. Five of the seven men at the gun were hit within minutes. Lieutenant Wood ordered several men from the other guns to come back and help them, which they did promptly. Just as they reached the gun, a mini-ball struck the horse squarely at the root of the tail, and it effectively performed an instantaneous cure for balking. The gun with its wounded was rushed back about a quarter of a mile, where the other guns were in battery on a small hill, ready to cover our retreat, which they did in good shape, and thus was averted what at one time seemed to be inevitable, the losing of a squad and gun. Private Enoch Colby, Jr., Willard's Battery A, 1st Illinois Light Artillery, W.H.L. Wallace's Division.
0: I was in the front rank close to our battle flag, a very dangerous position as the enemy directed most of their fire at the flag. Three of our men fell dead and several were wounded at the first fire. Our officers ordered us to fall back to a ravine some 30 or 40 steps in our rear. We only stayed here a few minutes when we were ordered to charge, which we did with a shout. We ran up near enough to be certain that our balls would reach them. We then fired a tremendous volley which seemed to have considerable effect on them. We then fell flat to reload. By this time the times got too hot for the Yanks, and they concluded, I have no doubt, that self-preservation was the first law of nature and acted accordingly. They gave way with great discord, while we rushed up with a great shout— WE STOPPED TO REST FOR A FEW MINUTES. I WALKED AROUND TO LOOK AT THE DEAD AND WOUNDED, WHICH LAY THICK OVER THE GROUND. THEY WERE MANGLED IN EVERY CONCEIVABLE FORM. SOME WERE IN THE LAST AGONIES OF DEATH. I COULD NOT PASS A WOUNDED MAN WITHOUT SAYING, GOD HAVE MERCY ON HIM. ONE POOR FELLOW WAS SHOT THROUGH THE HIPS. HE BEGGED ME TO DO SOMETHING FOR HIM. I ASKED WHY HE HAD LEFT HIS HOME TO COME HERE TO DESTROY PEOPLE WHO HAD NEVER HARMED HIM. He replied that he was sorry for it, and if he was spared, he would not do so any more. I told him to look to a higher power, and then left him. Private Liberty Independence Nixon, 26th Alabama Infantry, Gladden's Brigade
2: everyone. Thanks for downloading episode number 121 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich.
0: And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Welcome to the podcast. When we left off last time, it was late afternoon on the first day of the Battle of Shiloh, Sunday, April 6, 1862, and the heaviest weight of the Confederate attack was shifting to the center of the line. The rebel brigades that had been hammering at the hornet's nest earlier had spent themselves, at least for the moment, But then when Patton Anderson's brigade of troops from Florida, Louisiana, and Texas shifted over from the left, Anderson decided to have a go at the Federals on the far side of Duncan Field.
2: Those Federals were W.H.L. Wallace's men. Before giving the order to advance, Patton Anderson snagged an additional Louisiana regiment that had become separated from its brigade, and then he led four regiments and two battalions of rebel troops across Duncan Field. Wallace's Yankees, still sheltered in the thickets of the Hornet's Nest, and the old, shallowly eroded farm lane, later dubbed the Sunken Road, followed the same tactics they'd been using all day. They waited until the Southerners were almost upon them, and then they blasted the attackers with volley after volley of deadly close-range fire, and Anderson's attack, like the previous Confederate assaults here, was driven back.
0: Shortly after that, P.G.T. Beauregard ordered Brigadier General Daniel Ruggles to assume personal direction of the operations against the enemy center. Ruggles was actually a native of Massachusetts and an 1833 graduate of West Point, but he'd married a Southern belle from Virginia and had sided with the Confederacy when war came. At Shiloh, Ruggles started the day commanding one of Braxton Bragg's two divisions, but in the command confusion that resulted from the original faulty Confederate attack formation, Ruggles' three brigades ended up fighting in different sectors of the battlefield under various other generals. And so Ruggles found himself more or less at loose ends and in search of an assignment until Beauregard sent him to direct the rebel assaults on the Hornet's Nest.
2: Ruggles realized the Hornet's Nest would be a tough nut to crack. Frontal assaults had already failed, and as for outflanking the stubborn Federal defenders, well, Sherman's and McClernand's men were maintaining their positions to the Confederate left, while Albert Sidney Johnston had recently fallen mortally wounded in the attempt to force a way around the opposite flank of the Hornet's Nest. With flanking apparently not an option, and repeated frontal assaults on Wallace's and Prentiss's position already having proven to be bloody failures, Ruggles latched on to another idea. The idea seems to have originated with Ruggles' mistaken belief that W.H.L. Wallace's men were advancing in a counterattack, and although this was not in fact happening, Ruggles ordered a couple of batteries of Confederate artillery to shift position to repel the supposed Yankee attack.
0: The Federal counterattack never materialized, but Ruggles became excited by the idea of gathering as many Confederate cannon together as possible to batter the hornet's nest. He sent his entire staff off to round up as many guns as they could find. The rebels assembled all or parts of a dozen batteries, totaling some sixty cannon, and they were arranged in an irregular and intermittent line stretching from the main Corinth road opposite Wallace's right, all the way over to the eastern Corinth Road, a half mile away. It was the largest concentration of artillery yet seen in the Civil War.
2: The assembly of Confederate cannon arrayed against the Hornet's Nest opened fire around 4 p.m. Guns were still coming up and being positioned until 5 o'clock, but by that time the sound and fury of the bombardment was stupendous. The actual effect on the Union position, though, was less than the sound of the cannonading seemed to suggest. Wallace's and Prentiss's men went to ground in the thickets and along the shallowly eroded old farm lane, staying as low as they could, as many of the rebel artillery projectiles rushed by above them. Not all of the rebel shot was too high, however, and not all of the Federals were crouching low enough, and a number of the defenders were killed or wounded. But still, most of the Yankees were unscathed by the bombardment. Artillery alone was not going to be enough to drive the defenders from their position in the Hornet's Nest.
1: Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast.
0: Ruggles' efforts to use a grand battery that would hammer the hornet's nest into submission weren't entirely successful, but when added to other events that were occurring, the Confederate bombardment was part of the combination of factors that finally drove the Federals out of the position they'd held against all comers for hours.
2: One of those other events that factored into the final collapse of the hornet's nest took place on the Union right, where Sherman decided that he and McClernand's battered divisions would have to fall back again in order to maintain the integrity of their line. They did so about four o'clock, withdrawing northeast about three quarters of a mile, where they formed up along the Hamburg Savannah road, facing west and south, with their backs to the river now scarcely a mile away.
0: At about the same time, matters were reaching a crisis point over on the other side of the Hornet's Nest. As you all recall, Hurlbut's men had been driven from the peach orchard by the Confederate assault that Sidney Johnston had put together, the same attack in which Johnston was mortally wounded. But although Hurlbut's men initially managed to hold a new line just to the north of the peach orchard against continued heavy enemy pressure to their front, Hurlbut soon realized that the rebels were passing between his left and the river and that in order to avoid being outflanked, he would have to fall back again. He sent word over to Prentiss, informing his neighboring division commander of the move, and then Hurlbut started to pull his troops back.
2: Hurlbut's men started to withdraw in good order, but that didn't last long. Hurlbut had hoped to fall back and make a stand in front of his division's camps, along a slight ridge in a large field that belonged to a farmer named Cloud, but with the Confederates in hot pursuit, this proved impossible. The Rebels pressed forward so aggressively on the heels of Hurlbut's men and on their flanks that there was no chance for the harried Federals to form a new defensive line. As the Yankees neared their division's encampments, organization broke down, and some units disintegrated as the men took off for the rear in complete panic. Hurlbut and his staff rode this way and that, trying to get the men to rally, but to no avail. An officer on Hurlbut's staff later admitted that the soldiers were, quote, running as hard as their legs could carry them for the landing. The officer added that, quote, I never saw such a stampede in my life.
0: Hurlbut's retreating troops ran until they scrambled up a steep slope and emerged on the ridge where Grant's last-ditch defensive line was being established, where the Army's big 24-pounder siege guns had been placed so that if it came to it, they could blast the onrushing rebels before they could overrun Pittsburgh landing.
2: After scrambling up the slope and coming to that last ridge before the landing, most of Hurlbut's fleeing troops pulled up. Hurlbut and his officers were finally able to form the men into another line, with their faces toward the enemy. Some units had managed to maintain their integrity during the headlong retreat, and those units acted as rally points as Hurlbut, at Grant's orders, formed the division up to provide infantry support to the siege artillery. And as retreating field batteries straggled up, Hurlbut directed them into positions on either side of the big guns.
0: Meanwhile, back in the thickets of the hornet's nest and along the old farm lane, Hurlbut's withdrawal had left Prentice's remnant unsupported on its left. Hurlbut's courier carrying the message that he was pulling back never reached Prentice. Apparently he was killed before he could deliver the warning to Prentice. But before long, Prentice didn't need anyone to tell him that his support was gone and his left flank was up in the air. Onrushing Confederates delivered that message loud and clear. To counter this new threat, Prentiss quickly refused his left, bending his flank back all the way around, until it almost faced to the rear.
2: If Prentiss had ordered a withdrawal at once, there still might have been time to save what was left of his division, but Prentiss doesn't seem to have considered retreat an option. He was determined to go right on defending his position in the thickets and woods bisected by the old farm lane. Only W.H.L. Wallace's division was left with them now, and Prentice and Wallace quickly met to discuss their predicament. Prentice said he was staying right where he was, there in the hornet's nest, and he urged Wallace to do the same.
0: Ulysses S. Grant had visited Prentice, and probably Wallace too, at four or perhaps a little before, and his orders then were the same as they had been all day, hold at all hazards. After Hurlbut's withdrawal, when Wallace and Prentiss met to discuss their new situation, Wallace agreed to stay, or at least that's how Prentiss understood him.
2: But Wallace had faced this same kind of situation before, at Fort Donelson, seven weeks before, when he had commanded a brigade whose flank was turned by the rebels when the neighboring unit had given way. Before Wallace had realized what was happening, Confederates were attacking his brigade from front, rear, and from one flank, He'd given the order to fall back, but for many of his men, it had been too late. Now, at Shiloh, Wallace faced a similar situation, but this time he was responsible for an entire division rather than just a single brigade. Wallace faced a tough decision. He knew it was vital to the entire army's survival that he and Prentice hold their ground as long as possible. Grant had made that plain, but with Sherman and McClernand's troops to his right gone, and with Prentice's left in danger, Wallace realized that if he tried to hold on too long in the hornet's nest, then his division would be surrounded and trapped or slaughtered.
0: Shortly after talking to Prentice, Wallace received an alarming report from Colonel Thomas Sweeney, the commander of his right flank brigade. The Irish-born Sweeney had served as an officer of New York Volunteers in the Mexican War and suffered two wounds, one of which required the amputation of his right arm. After the war with Mexico, Sweeney continued to serve in the regular army, fighting Indians on the frontier until the outbreak of the Civil War. Sweeney was one of the toughest and most experienced brigade commanders at Shiloh, and he had already suffered a wound to his remaining arm and another to his leg. Four of his six regiments had been detached to reinforce Prentiss and Hurlbut, and McClernand's men had disappeared from his right, and now Sweeney came to Wallace to tell him that his two remaining regiments could no longer hold their position.
2: As Sweeney gave this grim news to Wallace, the Confederates were already surging round the right flank of Sweeney's 7th Illinois. The regiment's commanding officer gave the order to retreat, just in time to save his men from being overrun. Sweeney's other regiment, the 58th Illinois, also withdrew. Both regiments fell back toward the right rear of Wallace's remaining brigade and for a time continued to fight fiercely, holding back part of the Confederate tidal wave that was beginning to sweep around the hornet's nest from the west, but clearly it was just a matter of time before the hard-pressed 7th and 58th Illinois were overwhelmed.
0: Hearing Sweeney's report, W.H.L. Wallace decided the time had come to get his men out of there. He gave the order for the division to withdraw. Their artillery batteries limbered up first and galloped to the rear. Then the infantry began to pull out. The 7th and 58th Illinois were already retreating up the Corinth Road. Wallace's other brigade was commanded by Col. James M. Tuttle, and Wallace was directing the first two regiments of Tuttle's brigade, the 2nd and 7th Iowa, in their withdrawal toward the Corinth Road, but already the Confederates were closing in.
2: A line of rebels appeared from the woods to the left of the retreating column, and Wallace rose up in his stirrups to get a better look at the enemy as they emerged from the trees. As he did so, a bullet struck the back of his head, exiting through his left eye socket. Beside Wallace, his aide-de-camp and brother-in-law, Lieutenant Cyrus Dickey, vaulted from his horse as the grievously wounded general toppled to the ground. Dickey and three other men tried to carry the fallen Wallace to safety, but a storm of bullets was crisscrossing the ground over which they would have to travel, and after staggering along under their burden for a few yards, and with the onrushing Confederates almost upon them, Dicky reluctantly told the others to lay Wallace down, and then all four men ran for safety.
0: As the hornet's nest collapsed, the 7th Illinois and the 2nd and 7th Iowa made it out of the rapidly closing trap, but only a handful of the men from the 58th Illinois escaped. The rapidly advancing rebels cut off the 58th retreat, where the Corinth Road passed through a hollow a few hundred yards north of the old farm lane, and most of the regiment's men surrendered. The 12th and 14th Iowa, which had defended the Hornet's Nest as the left wing of Tuttle's Brigade, met a similar fate nearby in the same hollow after putting up a brisk but short fight.
2: Seeing Wallace's troops pulling out and the rebels surging through the area behind his lines, Prentiss ordered his command to turn around and charge the enemy to the rear. All of Prentiss's units became entangled and caught up in the same general area of woods and brush north of the Hornet's Nest. A few men, including almost all of the 3rd Iowa, broke through and made it back to the landing, but most, including Prentice, couldn't escape the trap and had to surrender. A defiant knot of men from the 8th Iowa held out and kept firing after the others had surrendered, but then they, too, finally had to lay down their arms.
0: In all, the rebels rounded up about 2,200 men of the 2nd and 6th Divisions. Of Peabody's Brigade, which had opened the day's fighting more than 12 hours before, only 236 men were left around the Colors to surrender. Out of 2,790 it had had that morning.
2: It was about 5.30 on Sunday evening as the guns finally fell silent in the hornet's nest.
0: to WHL Wallace, his wife Anne had arrived at Pittsburgh Landing on a steamboat early that very morning to pay him a surprise visit. Anne had stayed on board, dressed in her Sunday finery, while an officer went to find her husband, but it wasn't long before the sounds of battle rose up from beyond the landing. Anne later wrote, My husband had moved with his command to the front, so it was impossible for me to reach him. The only thing then for me to do was wait where I was.
2: As the day wore on and the sounds of fierce fighting drew closer to the landing, Anne Wallace became increasingly anxious for the safety of her family. Besides her husband, her father and two brothers were also serving in Grant's army. Anne later recalled that quote, "That long day on that steamboat, its scenes and sensations are beyond any description." The wounded were brought by hundreds onto the boat. I passed from place to place holding water and bandages for the surgeons until it became so crowded that I felt I was in the way, and I went on the upper deck and sat there.
0: Anne was still there on the deck of the steamboat when she received word that her husband had been shot. A short time later, her brother, Cyrus Dickey, arrived and gave her the details of Wallace's wounding. He told her they had laid his body beside the road, close to some ammunition boxes, to keep him from being trampled, but other than this he could tell her no more. From what Cyrus had said, Anne was sure her husband was dead, but with the enemy in possession of the ground where his body lay, there was no way to confirm that his wound had been fatal. But the next day, Monday, as the big Union counterattack rolled forward on the second day of the battle, Cyrus Dickey made his way to the spot where he had left Will Wallace's body, and incredibly, found the general was still there and still breathing despite his horrible head wound. Quickly having Wallace carried to the landing, Dickey found his sister and gave her the news that her husband was still alive. Anne flew to her husband's side, and later that afternoon a steamboat carried them down river to Savannah, where Wallace was placed in the cherry Mansion, Grant's headquarters.
2: Anne was certain that when she had reached her husband's side and taken his hand, he had responded to the touch and to her voice by pressing her hand. but the dreadfully injured Wallace never regained consciousness, and he died four days after being wounded while trying to lead his men out of the hornet's nest.
0: That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is Shiloh and the Western Campaign of 1862 by O. Edward Cunningham, with Gary D. Joyner and Timothy B. Smith as editors.
2: Back in 1966, Edward Cunningham wrote his doctoral dissertation on the Battle of Shiloh. And while the manuscript subsequently remained unpublished, Joyner and Smith resurrected it several years ago and edited it and shepherded it through publication. While the book isn't the best overall narrative treatment of the battle, and it suffers from too many distracting footnotes, it's still interesting and informative.
0: You can find Shiloh and the Western Campaign of 1862 and all of our other book recommendations compiled in a handy list at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org.
2: We have a new member of the Strawfoot Brigade to welcome this week, Peter L. from Canada. Good to have you on board, Peter.
0: Thanks, Peter.
2: And then as we wrap things up, uh, just a reminder that the lovely music you hear at the beginning and end of every episode is from the song Midnight on the Water, and we use it with the kind permission of Spiritwood Music.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861-1865, to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I hope you'll join us again next week when we continue with the story of the Battle of Shiloh. But until then, take care.
2: Thanks, everyone. Bye.